0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right. Glad you guys are here. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, let's get right to it. We don't have a lot of time. Um, Springer mentioned that Brad is out of town, uh, significantly out of town. But he's on his way back. Uh, I think he'll be heading back pretty soon. Um, Because he's out of town, we're going to take a bit of a break from Romans this week. uh, And we're going to look at the Old Testament. In particular, we're going to be in the book of Joshua. That's the fifth book of the Old Testament. We're going to be in chapter 2 and a little bit in chapter 6. I don't know the exact page numbers. They might be up on the screen, are they? Yeah, they are. Awesome. There are two different Bibles in the pews. Grab one if you don't have one, and you can turn to that page and find it. If you don't have a Bible at all, please take that uh, with you, devour it, take it home with you, read it, study the Word, Uh, grow, and um, certainly pray that you'd be blessed by that. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we'll get to the text. Um, Got a few thoughts I want to give you before we get to it. We'll read it, and then I've got several points to make about it. All right, let me pray. Uh, Lord, we are grateful to be here in your house with your people this morning, to be gathered around the cross, to be gathered by the cross, by Jesus, who has, has saved us from, from the wrath to come. He has borne the weight of our sin uh, in himself. We pray now that as we hear your word that we would be attuned to that truth and that you would stir in us a deep joy uh, and, a, and a zeal for your name, uh, not just in our own hearts, but uh, among, among the nations, among all the the people that we come across in our daily routine, even. We pray that you would guide us now. Give us ears and eyes to hear and to see. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Joshua. Chapter 2, this is, um, like I said, a book in the Old Testament. And so if you're not familiar with your Israelite history, maybe that's not something you majored in in college, i want to give you a very quick, very quick update on how things are at this point in the game, right? So in Genesis, God makes a promise to Abram is pagan. He brings him up out of the darkness, and he says, I'm going to make you my guy, and all your people will be my people. And Abram laughs and says, I don't have any people. What are you talking about? I'm like 100 years old. I don't have any kids. And God says, well, sure, but I'm going to to overlook that. I'm I'm going to give you a family. You just trust me. And the Lord does that. The Lord gives him a nation of a family, which we call Israel. We turn to Exodus, and we find out that these Israelites have been subjected to slavery. They are being held in bondage in Egypt, and they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears their cry, and because he's faithful to his people, he brings them up out of Egypt. He sends Moses to rescue them, to save them, to redeem them from the house of slavery, and he delivers them through the wilderness all the way to the entrance of the promised land. This is a place that God had sworn to give to his people. It's a land, as you know, flowing with milk and honey. It's a fertile place. It's a beautiful, It's, it's, it's a resort community in their eyes. This is where we want to go. And so they travel this great distance. The Lord does incredible signs and wonders among them to get them there. Um, Hopefully you're familiar with the story of their crossing of the Red Sea where they literally walk through the Red Sea because God parts the waters for them. That doesn't happen every day, ever. And, And then later on when they're hungry or when they're thirsty, the Lord provides for them food from the sky and he gives them water out of rocks. Okay, The Lord does incredible things to get them through the wilderness to the promised land. Yeah, amen. So they get to the promised land, and, and, and what happens, right? They just storm the gates. They go in. They take it over. No prisoners. You would hope. That's what you would think. That's what you would expect, right? You would hope. But instead, they determine to send in 12 spies. And there's nothing wrong with sending in these spies. They, they send some guys out just to scout things, figure out what's on the other side of the Jordan River, Jordan River, depending on who you are in this room, they go across, some of you army people, I feel bad because I know that that's just not something that necessarily registers with you. Anyway, moving on. So they go, they go, they send these spies across the river and they go into the promised land and they scope it out. And what do they find? They find that yes, everything is as the Lord has said, it is a beautiful place. Oh, but also, and this is the main takeaway from their report, the people there are giants and they're going to kill us all. We probably shouldn't go. Let's get a new leader and let's head back to Egypt. And the Israelites say, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Slavery was not so bad. If I remember correctly, God, frustrated with this breach of faith, determines that they'll get exactly what they want. You know what? You don't want to go into the promised land, which I've promised to you, which means that you can count on it being yours, you don't want to go in, that's fine. You won't go in. In fact, you won't go anywhere. You're just going to stay here in the wilderness until all of you die. And then I'll start over with a new generation that I know will go into this promised land and trust me and take it over. And that's that's where we are here now. Joshua chapter 2. Moses is no longer around. That generation of Israelites, they've been dead for 40 years. None of them are hanging out, except for a couple dudes, one named Caleb and one named Joshua, both of whom were the only two spies to go into the promised land and come out saying, it's going to be hard, but the Lord's with us. Joshua, in fact, now is the leader of God's people, and he determines that it's time to enter the promised land. Let's go. So, They're at the door. It's a new generation, new people. They're they're waiting to go in and take what is theirs. Now, a few few thoughts here before we get too far into this because I realize, especially in our day and age, that this concept of conquest and and the Israelites coming in and just taking over Canaan, a land populated with people, that's that's problematic to us, right? Uh, To our modern ears, we hear that and think, Wait, what? That's not fair. That's not right. The Canaanites haven't done what? What's going on here? But let me just give you a few thoughts to ease your mind before we really get into it. One, God, the God of the Israelites now, he, he made everything, right? He is the creator of all things, including this little strip of land in the Middle East. The Canaanites live there because the Lord lets them live there. But it's not theirs. It's, it's not Israel's. It's the Lord's land. And he can distribute it however he sees fit. And because he loves his people in a way different than all the peoples of the earth, he sees fit to give the promised land to them. All right, point number one. Point number two, or really pre-point number two if we're getting down to it, is that the Canaanites, they're not exactly morally ambiguous characters in this. The Canaanites are opposed to the God of Israel, And not only that, we see if we turn back to Genesis 15, when the Lord speaks to Abram about taking this land for his family, he says, we're not going to do this yet. And he gives him one reason in particular, which is that the sin of the people in the promised land has not reached the fever pitch that I'm counting on. The Lord's not wiping these people out just indiscriminately because he hates all non-Jews. Right? The, the, the wrath of God is justly and righteously coming upon the Canaanites. It's as if they're getting a taste of judgment day before the final whistle. They're getting what is theirs. Point number three, lest we forget, the Israelites are no better. They're no better. And this is the point that God makes when he speaks to them in Deuteronomy Nine, four, and five, I'll read this very quickly. He he or Moses, I believe, says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them, the Canaanites, out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, The Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The Lord's glory is at stake, in other words. Taking the land is not a matter of God preferring one ethnicity to another. It's a matter of the Lord giving to his people what he wants for them, and it's a matter of the Lord doing something for his people that they really don't even deserve themselves. This is, this is a matter of grace for his people, and it's a matter of justice for the Canaanites. So let's get, let's get to the text then. Here we're in Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to read a little bit, comment along the way to make sure you're tracking, and then we'll, we'll pick it up. And at the end, we'll conclude with some points. Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this sets the scene then for all that is about to take place. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. but she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So let's make sure we understand what's taking place here. The Lord uh, has told Joshua, now's the time. Joshua determines to send in two spies to go check things out, make sure that Jericho is what they think it is and we can. what's the best you know, plan for attack here. It's interesting, though, that the spies, we don't, we don't know their names. We never get to know their names, which is even more fascinating because in Numbers 13 and 14, when we see 12 spies go into the promised land that first time, we get their names. We get the names of their daddies. We get the names of their families, all of it. Right? There's no mistaking who these guys are in numbers. Here, it's just two guys. Right, This is the special forces of Israel. They're just being sent out, but their names really aren't worth knowing. It's not a big deal. And it's because they're not really central to this story, which is all the more shocking because the one other person in this story who is named besides Joshua is Rahab. And What do we know about Rahab? She's a Canaanite, right? This is by birth. She's, she is an enemy of God and his people, just off, off the bat. But not only is she, a, is she a Canaanite, she's also a woman, which does nothing to do with her stance before God. I'm just going to go ahead and say that, unless there be any confusion, okay? She's not an enemy of God because she's a she. But my point is that in this day and age, certainly, Women are not the central characters of these stories. They're not the heroes of these narratives. All right, it's a rarity to see a woman named in the Bible, let alone to have the role that Rahab is about to have. Okay. And then thirdly, and surely you did not miss this detail, she is a prostitute. This is not the moral fiber and backbone of Jericho we're dealing with here, All Right? Rahab is the, she is at the bottom of the totem pole. There's no reason we can expect this woman to be anything remotely resembling an ideal Israelite. In fact, she's really not even the best that Jericho has to offer. She's right there at the the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, And, and in so many ways, an enemy of God. But we noticed some things about her very early on that distinguish her from maybe some of the other Canaanites. She's a shrewd lady, isn't she? She's, she's crafty. And from the very beginning, she's got some sort of plan. We don't know what it is, but we can tell that she has her own mission in mind, right? She, she brings the spies into her home, she welcomes them, she hides them, she lies to her king. She lies to her king about knowing anything about them, least of all, where they are. And then, in a very clever ruse, she checks her watch, realizes what time it is, knows that the gates of the city are closing for the day, and says, you know what, Uh, I think they left that way. Maybe if you go now before the gate closes, you can catch them. She sends them on a mission that they had to take right then to get out of Dodge and find these two guys. Rahab is... um, She's taking some risks. But not only that, she, she, she doesn't just lie about where they are and hide them. She, she brings them into her home. She puts them on her roof to hide them, which may not seem like an important detail. But, but, I mean, let's think about this. To get to the roof of her house, it's not like they scaled the wall outside. She brought them into her living room. She brought them into the heart of her home, led them up to the roof where oftentimes people would sleep because it's so hot, right? Right? She brings them into her house. I mean, she has totally opened herself to these two spies. She's put it all on the table without saying a word. She does this at great personal risk. I think you see that. She is automatically, before she even speaks to the king of Jericho, a traitor to her people. She, she clearly also values something about these spies more than her own life. This is is not just she's going to get a slap on the wrist if this is found out, right? She is really boldly attaching herself to the fate of these two guys whose names we don't even know. Let's keep going. Starting in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That the fear of you has fallen upon us. That all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction... As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And we've taken a turn, maybe, from what you expected to hear from the prostitute. She gives this incredible speech. It's one of the longest speeches in the Old Testament from a woman. And it's recorded here in detail that is striking. But at the heart of what she has to say to these two men is this, that she is very clearly confident in the Lord's word to deliver his people and to destroy his enemies. There's no escaping this truth for her. She sees it. She explains it to them. This is what is driving everything she's doing right now. I know who your God is. I know that he is the one and only. I know that he has given you certain promises, things that he will do for you to bring you through, and yes, to conquer even this city, and I know that he'll do it. I mean, if we just if we pause for a second and you think about this and you, and you reflect on The history of the Israelites to this point, she is a more faithful Israelite already than the entire generation that they just waited out for 40 years. She knows more about what God has in store for his people than half of his people know. And she acts on it. It's uh, really incredible because she is echoing some words from Moses himself in Exodus, if you'll turn with me, Exodus 15. Moses, he sings this song after they get through a few uh, trials, and he, he says this, starting in verse 13, chapter 15, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Rahab, I mean, she just said that, right? Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. It's as if Rahab took a play out of Moses' book. She's different in some important ways, but it should, should tell us something that her theology so clearly mirrors that of the greatest Israelite to this point. Moses. Let's keep going. Joshua chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 12. Let's pick up where we were. Let me pick up where I was. Now then, this is the conclusion of her plea to the spies. Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. She said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And She said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, much is often made of the scarlet cord. It's a red thread. It's clearly Jesus' blood. Um, no, that's just not, it's just not good reading the Bible there. It's just a scarlet cord. It's very visible from the window. It's something they can see very easily and noticeably so that they can save Rahab. That's their mission. But let's summarize then what has what taken place in that exchange. Rahab... Essentially asked them, ask these two spies to please, please save me from the wrath that is coming. I see God's wrath barreling down on me. I know that it is coming, and I want to be saved from this. Please save me. And the spy's response to her is essentially remain faithful to the people of God. Right? Don't don't talk about what we've talked about here. Don't tell anybody our secrets. Remain faithful to us and you'll be saved. And and it's not said necessarily explicitly here, but but to remain faithful to the people of God is, is to remain faithful to the God of his people, right? So the spies leave her with a very clear command stay put, stay faithful. And you'll be saved chapter concludes in verse 22 they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing then the two men returned they came down from the hills and passed over and came to joshua the son of nun and they told him all that had happened to them and they said to joshua truly the lord has given all the land into our hands and also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. It's amazing. They plagiarize Rahab. <laughs> and that's basically what she just told them. Um, but her words are so true, the spies can't think of a better way to say it. Joshua, here's a story. We met this prostitute in Canaan who told us everything, she's right. Over the next few chapters, different things unfold. God speaks to Joshua, gives him some encouragement, some direction. In particular, tells him that that the way they're going to defeat this enemy is um, counterintuitive, to say the least. I want you to get a a band of your best um, trombone players, right? And I want you to march around the city. And I just want you to, like, toot your horn. And the city will be completely wiped out. Go in and destroy what's left of it. What? Uh, what? All right? It's an it's an incredible thing that the Lord tells the, the Israelites to do, and and so that while that is transpiring, right? Um, the the people of God are gearing up then for for battle. The the wrath of God, the destruction and judgment is is on its way. Um. But let, let's focus here for a second on something because Rahab is going to come back up. Right, these walls will come down, including the very wall that she lives in. And, and her name comes up again in chapter 6. And so it leaves us to think about Rahab a little bit more. Right, what, what, what significance does she have in this story? And why why include these details in here? In a shocking twist, right? Rahab, the Canaanite, the prostitute, the consummate enemy of God, becomes a model of faithfulness to the one true God. All right? Rahab is an enemy, and yet she becomes a model of what it looks like to trust in the God of Israel. And, and so let's, let's see then how she does this. There are three things I want to draw out here about the nature of this faith that Rahab demonstrates. Right, and we'll call this faith a, a saving faith because in the end, she is rescued from the rubble. Number one, saving faith apprehends God's wrath and appropriately fears God. It's inescapable as we read this text, as we hear Rahab's own words, that she is acutely aware that the wrath of God is coming. She sees it, she knows it, and she acts on it. Colossians 3, 5 and 6 gives us more of an idea of of this. Paul says to the Colossians, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6, Paul says to them, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons, and in Rahab's case, daughters of disobedience. It's not a popular thing to talk about. It's not the most uplifting aspect of the Bible when we, when we gather together to think about. But, but do, you, do you think about the wrath of God? Do you think about the wrath of God in the way that Rahab thinks about it? Right, Rahab was fearing a very real enemy. She was fearing a very real physical destruction of her city, of all that she held dear, of her own life. It's what she expects. And we don't maybe have the same expectation today, uh, but, but that doesn't actually make this better. Because the destruction that is coming for the sons of disobedience, as Paul calls them, is a destruction that is far more than physical death. And did you see what what that destruction is coming for? This isn't where you live, it's not who you are, it's not who your family is. There are very specific things listed out here that maybe even as I read them, you heard and kind of cringed because you know the ways in which you have dealt with those different things or maybe continue to deal with these particular aspects of sin. And you need to hear today, you need to know that, that these things, they're not harmless. We can't dabble in sin. We can't dabble in worldliness and idolatry these things are not to be trifled with because for these things, the wrath of God is coming. It is bearing down with, with a destructive force far greater than anything that, that we see happen to Jericho. We, 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 we often, we don't want to think about the wrath of God, but this is a crucial element of saving faith. It, it really is. Now, how, how can you believe and trust in the Lord to save you from something that you don't think he's actually going to do? Likewise, how can we preach a gospel to anyone without, without being clear to them about the consequences of sin? There's, there's no salvation without a realization that, that we are in the crosshairs of wrath. That's where it starts. And Rahab, she sees this. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27 says that in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. All right, you can face this wrath with the appropriate kind of fear and dread that you should. And I hope maybe that you sense that, maybe you feel that just a little bit, right, in your gut. But it's it's not enough to just be afraid. There are two ways that this fear can work itself out. It can work itself out in a defensiveness, which is what we see happen to every other group of Canaanites that we read about in the following narrative. Every last one of them. Response because, and, and Rahab, there's no reason to suspect that she's wrong about this. Their enemies, they are in dread of the people of God. And yet, so many of them, again and again and again, even the Jericho citizens we're about to read about, they just, they, they see it coming and they don't do anything but just bow up against it. They just rage, right? That's one way you can respond to Fear. Or you can do what Rahab does. You can let fear make you wise for salvation. This is, this is the point of Proverbs 1:7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge. Specifically, I would say, the knowledge of anything that matters, the knowledge of God, how to be right with Him. Fear is where that starts. Not a dread, not a terror. Not a horror movie kind of fear, but an awe, a gravity, a solemnity. Do you have that? Let's keep going. Saving faith, number two, it identifies with God's people. This is what Rahab does. She tethers herself to the fate, not only of these two spies, but of, uh, of all Israel, waiting on the other side. She binds herself to them. She makes that commitment within seconds of letting them into her home. Hebrews eleven thirty one. 31, we read about Rahab later. This is the hall of faith that we talk about so often. Hebrews 11, where so many examples of faith are, are, are mentioned, especially from the Old Testament. And Rahab makes the cut. She is, she's included in this list. And the reason why Hebrews 11.31, by faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She made friends. She grafted herself. She attached herself to the people of God. She clung to them for dear life. It's, it's similar, I think, even to, to Ruth, right? You're familiar with this story? The, the Moabite woman, not all that different from, from Rahab. She, she follows her mother-in-law after the death of her uh, Israelite husband. She follows her mother-in-law back to Israel. And when she does that, it's at great risk for herself, but one of the things that she says is this to to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Rahab, in in so many words, has done the same thing. And what's really interesting, this is not a point, this is free, Rahab, as it turns out, is Ruth's mother-in-law, by her second marriage I had never realized that until until recently but if you go to Matthew and you look at the 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 generations leading up to Jesus in chapter one Rahab later on marries this man named Salmon who has a son named Boaz who who becomes Ruth's husband and I, I don't think it's coincidental I think that's very interesting to me because these two women are so alike and both of them, they put all their chips in with the people of God. They, they, they unite themselves to God's people. And, and in so doing, truly unite themselves to the Lord. It's because there's, there's really, and I have to be careful how I say it, there's there's no... There's just, there's no salvation outside of the people of God. Now, I don't mean that you must be in a church to receive salvation. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's no category in the Bible for someone who knows the Lord and loves Him but has no connection to His people. For someone who is going rogue in their faithfulness to God, that doesn't exist. To be united to the Lord is to be united to His people. And yet, how often we neglect this connection, how little we cherish the people of God at times. Rahab risked her life to identify with God's people, and and yet so often we find it a burden to be here on Sunday mornings, find it maybe uh, difficult to be in community with one another and have difficult conversations. You want to talk about somebody who invested her life in the people of God, It's Rahab. This should challenge our supposed love of and faithfulness to God when it comes without a corresponding love for his church and for gathering with his people. Think about that. What's your attitude toward the people of God? Do you tolerate us, one another? Is that it? Or or is there more? Do you love, do you cherish, would you die for? And there are a million ways to die for somebody without physically dying. Would you die for the church? Would you die for his people? John, 1 John three fourteen says that we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's how Rahab escaped death too. She, she loved the brothers, and, and it's, it shows. Ephesians 2, 18 through 22 says, For through him, through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Ah, that's good. This is is a picture of what it is to be a part of God's people. If your experience of of the Christian life doesn't look like that, you are missing something. You should be very concerned. Because saving faith tethers itself to God's people. But, But let's be clear, right? Wanting this is not the same thing as having it. Rahab could have wanted it All day long, and remained in Jericho when the walls came down, and she would have died the same as every other citizen of Jericho. But something else happened. And I think it's because of this by tethering herself to the fate of God's people, she was really tethering herself to the providence of of Israel's God. She wasn't just rolling the dice. If you remember, Rahab knows. She knows how the Lord delivers God's people through all kind of destruction. She knows how he'll do it. She's not hoping. She's not, this is not wishful thinking. Rahab has thrown herself at the mercy of God the Almighty. And that's, that's our third point. Saving faith ultimately does just that, it throws itself upon God's mercy found only in Jesus. Chapter six concludes Rahab's time in Joshua, really in in the Bible except for a few mentions, but it is so important. Chapter six, verse 15. On the seventh day, they, the Israelites, rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute... And all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Joshua issues the command and orders that Rahab be saved alive. All right, what if Joshua had no idea? What if the spies had never told him how they came about this knowledge of the city? Uh, this, This hinges so much on Joshua. And Joshua's in kind of a tight spot because they've been ordered to destroy anything, anyone living in any of these Canaanite cities that the Lord's about to give to them. But Joshua sees, I think, what we're seeing here, which is that this is no ordinary Canaanite. Or rather, it is, she is an ordinary Canaanite. But one who has cast herself on the mercy of God. And Joshua then commands that she be saved from destruction. If we keep going in verse 22, excuse me, sorry, verse 16, doggone it, 18, here we go. But you, Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take away any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it, which, by the way, happens like two chapters from now. But all silver and gold and every vessel of, of, of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city Every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out from there. Bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they fought And they they did not fight. They brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. She has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Did you catch that? Rahab was saved alive by Joshua. Despite everything that she had done, good or bad, in the end, it really it, it comes down to whether or not Joshua will act to save her. And that's, that's really important. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, Joshua is, is an Old Testament, it's a Hebrew name. Um, that we read a lot in the, in the Old Testament. Um, and, and over time, names change, and new languages come and go, and, and things change. Over time, the name Joshua actually changes. I mean, we still have it today, but there's a, there are different variations of it. One of those variations is Jesus. I'm not making this up. This is, this is true. Joshua means the Lord saves. And that's what Jesus means. And I think that's so amazing because because Jesus in so many ways is Joshua 2.0. Jesus is the one that, that, that takes Joshua's place, ultimately. And just as Rahab needed Joshua to intervene on her behalf, to save her from the wrath to come, we too, we need Jesus to step in, to intervene, to to hold off the destruction and wrath that is is coming for you and for me. We need him. And the only way we can be tethered to him, the only way we can find that salvation is the same way that God's people have been saved from Genesis 3 until now, which is by faith putting all of our chips in with him. Turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 15. This, this, this story is so beautiful, especially because of how it fits into this story we've been reading in Joshua, Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. Maybe in your Bible there's a heading there. Mine says, the faith of a Canaanite woman. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. This lady will not leave us alone. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I realize that language is kind of harsh-sounding to our ears. Dogs was a common way to refer to people outside of Israel at this time. It's not that Jesus is saying, hey, lady, you're a dog. It's not that. Um, Jesus is really defining the terms here. You're not among the people of God. You're not among Israel. I've been, I've been sent for Israel, right? Right? But she persists, and she says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, "O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. It's no coincidence, I don't think, that this woman is a Canaanite. That in so many ways, this woman parallels Rahab, whom we've been reading about. You see the humility and and the brokenness of this woman as she approaches Jesus, knowing that so much that is is her, so much that, that is her daughter's lot in life is the result of the fall and of sin and of brokenness. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. There's no reason to suspect that anyone in her lifetime would ever have been able to deal with this situation. And yet, she hears of Christ. She comes to him boldly, humbly. She kneels before him because she knows who he is. She knows the promises that he has made, not just to save Israel, but to be the redeemer of all the nations. She knows. And she she throws herself at his mercy. And Jesus, he saves her daughter and recognizes the faith of this woman and says, I, I see it. It's, this is valid. You will find salvation with me. In this story, just like in Rahab's boldness and faith and brokenness meet with the mercy and love of Jesus. And, and all this is made possible because, because Jesus, Jesus bears the wrath to come for all who trust in him. Rahab managed to escape, but it's, it's not as simple as saying that the wrath of God just vanished. That the wrath of God is just. It can't just be washed away, wiped away. And so as Jesus stands here before this Canaanite woman, he pays the cost later in his death on the cross to fully absorb the destruction and wrath that is bearing down on all of his people. How do we, how do we become his people? How do we find ourselves tethered, tethered to him? It's, it's only by faith, not by anything we've done, but, but only because of him. The beautiful thing about Rahab's story, if you turn to, well, don't do it now, but if you were to read Matthew chapter one and read all the begats of Jesus, you you find Rahab show up again, and and it's because she is an ancestor of Jesus himself. Isn't that incredible? You know, the way the story ends in Joshua, there's a little note, you know, saying that she was left and her family were left outside the camp, not permanently, but until until they were cleansed. This is a Gentile woman. She needs to be cleansed. The the way things worked then was was just so. But we see, right, how far things, things went. In Matthew 1, 5, Rahab's not just tolerated as a holdover from some promise that Joshua foolishly made. No, Rahab is brought fully into the people of God, made even an ancestor of Jesus, Himself and her faith was counted righteous. If you have been thinking about that this morning, maybe you've just been struck by this truth uh, of what faith really looks like. Um, maybe it occurs to you that you have you are you yourself are in the crosshairs. Don't leave here this morning without without speaking to somebody among the people of God. All right? Springer and I will, will be up front. You can certainly come and, and speak to us. we will be glad to pray with you and talk with you. Uh, not just right now, but even after the service. Um, but not only that, right? The, the people of God are out in this room. We are the people of God. And, and like those spies, we, we bring the same message. You can talk to anybody who's... A believer pray with them, so I'm going to pray now for us, and, and then after I'm done the worship team will come forward and they'll lead us in in song. Um, but please come forward and, and, and pray if, if you'd like speak more with us about the gospel. Let me pray for us. <sighs> Father, we can only come before you because you have paid the price for us to enter into your presence. Your wrath was bearing down on us. Whether we saw it or not, whether we felt the weight of it or not, your justice demands punishment for sin. And all of us by nature are rebels by birth and by choice, We are all alike, fallen short of the glory of God. But we, we thank you for making a way for us, for securing salvation for us, not because of anything we've done, but truthfully because of the work of your Son to stand in the gap to issue the command that we would be saved by his blood, by his work, by his submission to the destruction of his own body. That as he was raised from the dead, if we are united to him by faith, we too are brought out of the rubble of the destruction of this world. Lord, Give us hearts that, 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 that love you and rejoice in this truth. Even now, as we sing your, your praise, I ask that you would give us a zeal and a passion for your name. The Lord saves. You have done it. Help us to see sober-mindedly the, the wrath to come. Help us to fear your name with humility and boldness. May we tether ourselves to your people by doing so tether ourselves to you. And we ask it all in the name of the one upon whose feet we we throw ourselves in desperation. Jesus Christ. Amen.